Welcome back, everybody, to the newest episode of thepenpodcast.com. I'm your host, Matt Harms, founder of Pen for Hire, where we offer premier ghostwriting and author coaching services. Also, the creators of the Pen Podcast, where we sit with authors, writers, writing industry professionals, subject matter experts, and all around interesting people. And today, I have the pleasure of being joined by none other than our former client, Kaylin Romaine. How are you today, Kaylin? Hi, how are you? I am doing wonderful. How about yourself? You've been a busy lady. Very busy. I have been fantastic. It's so interesting because we spent a year and a half on my book, even though it was only supposed to be six months. It was all my fault, y'all. Um, but since the book has come out, it's been almost six months because it actually it has been five months to the day because it debuted on Amazon September the 6th. And I mean, life has just been throwing me twists and turns, even in my personal life, but I'm excited because I think the book has given me such a great foundation to launch concepts, have sales conversations, just the whole gamut. So I'm excited. I love it. And yeah, I only bring up the uh, the client aspect because we do try to get clients on sooner rather than later, but I know yes. you're busy. So we yes. appreciate you making the time today. Um, one of the first questions I usually like to start with people is what made you want to write a book to begin with? Oh, I have been a writer since I was a very small child. So interestingly enough, uh, I went to the magnet school in Detroit and this comes up in my book, but they really pushed us around the creative arts. So we had, and it's ironic because this is filmed in February, Black History Month. We used to have this competition called Bates Battle. I went to Bates Academy in Detroit. And for Black History Month, it was a huge celebration all month long. And so we would have Jeopardy and Family Feud style games. We would have books that we would write and short stories we would write, art we would draw. And so this started all the way down to kindergartners. So I came to the school in first grade. I started writing at that moment. And my entire elementary, middle school education and high school was centered on writing. I knew I was gonna write a book at some point. <clears throat> I started novels, but of course never finished them all throughout grade school. And I went to a creative writing class at Northwestern. I was a part of a program in the Center for Talent Development. And they had a summer program where you came and stayed on campus for three weeks. And they had a whole syllabus and curriculum of courses that you could pick from. And I picked creative writing. And it was like fire was just lit from there. I knew then that I had to write. So this is a dream that is about 35 years or so in the making. <laughs> So I, I love that. And it's myself included writing since a kid. Um, so many of our guests have kind of that, that underlying passion. I don't, most people don't just wake up one day and say they want to write a book, but no, I am curious for you. Cause much like me, I grew up writing creative writing fiction. Uh, you know, the craziest stories you could come up with mm -hmm. and transitioning into writing a nonfiction business book is yes. a completely different world, right? You know what is so interesting because it's not. And I think that's really one of the things that I enjoyed about our process because one of the things that I learned early on in my journey, there's a book and I know it's somewhere in my office. It's called The Guide to Writing Fiction and Nonfiction. I think it was published in the early 90s probably. It was one of our textbooks at Northwestern. 
And there's a whole chapter dedicated to how to develop your character. And there's this character persona where you write everything there is to know about your character, their personality, where were they born? How old are they? What's their favorite color? What's their favorite foods? And all of these little minute details, but that help you to keep a consistent story throughout. I applied that same principle to my nonfiction book, the idea of plot development. I applied that same principle to my nonfiction book because when people read books, the ca especially the casual reader or someone who's not a writer, they don't understand plot devices or all of the little elements that we put in in literature. They're just reading. And so the same things that make a princess story or a novel about a divorcee or a novel about someone going on a science fiction adventure, those same principles that make those books interesting, they make nonfiction books interesting as well. Interesting. See, I've never looked at it like that. And I think it's because the way my brain works, when I'm writing fiction, it's more of a release. It's more of a, I don't feel like I need to think that hard about it. Although mm -hmm. there is a point where, cause you know, if you're writing a novel, you got 350, 400 pages. You have to make sure yeah. things ties together. Otherwise you're going to lose your reader. So that part exactly. is the same. Right. But when you're writing nonfiction, it's almost like you are the subject matter expert. So yes. it, it's just you've got all of this information that I guess that that's probably where the difficult part comes in. Right. Because mm -hmm. you just dump it all out. And now it's like, how the hell do I organize it? Yes, I think. And I think what made it easier for me is that the character, the protagonist in my book is the reader. So my book, Evolution to Equity, is about founders developing themselves to then develop their executive teams to then develop their organizations. And so the person who has to grapple with and fight through conflict and inner conflict, and you have the anti-hero in the form of folks who mean well, but might undermine your journey. Uh, you have the folks who might be all out villains in your story, and they are the people who you wouldn't think would be villains. That same principle is happening. And we just break it into three sections. So I think, but it's interesting what you're saying because there is a level of creativity that exists in a lot of fiction books. I think the difference maker for my subject matter is that I really am asking the reader to create a world that might not exist for them yet. And so the same principle of a really good science fiction book, I think of The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings trilogy, which of course the Hobbit is a prequel to those same ideas that, hey, there is something coming that is a result of human error. Do you want to continue down this dark path or do you want to transform the world into something where we all can have a chance to thrive? I took that baseline principle and then created the book from there. And you were excellent. You, Amaris, were excellent at pushing back on me and saying, uh, I don't know if this sequence comes across like you think it does. And it was nice because you all aren't subject matter experts. So if I couldn't write with you as the ghostwriting team to help you understand it, then I know my reader isn't going to because they don't have all the background information about my why like you all do. So you were kind of my first, uh, my first practice round <laughs> as a reader. And I love that you said that because I actually tell clients this all the time when they're they're interviewing me and they're like, oh, are you, 
how, how well do you know this subject matter? And I'm like, if I know it too well, you don't want to work with me. Exactly. Uh, because exactly. I'm, I'm not going to be able to push back. I'm going to be like, oh yeah, 100%. I understand it. Like, but for you, um, you were able to create these compelling dynamics of yes. basically calling the reader out, right? Putting them in the position and saying, does this sound like you? Well, what are you going to do about it? Exactly. And I, I've really tried to not only call them out, but call them in. And I think that that's the missing piece in a lot of books in my industry in particular. They either go the route of too woo-woo, so it feels impractical, or it feels too condescending and too accusatory. And I think there's a balance because the premise of my book, again, is evolution. So that means we're all starting from a place and trying to get to some other place. What that looks like for you is going to be different than somebody else. What that looks like for your industry is going to be different. But the key is that you take the journey. Yeah, and I, and I love, again, that you said this pulling you in as well, because yeah. everyone reads a book or most people read a business professional development book because they want to solve for a problem. They want to get yeah. better at something. Yep. But no one wants to be told they've got a problem. Right. Exactly. You read a diet book. You don't want to be told you're fat. You don't want to be told what you, yes. you, you yes. want to kind of be brought into that process and feel yes. like, yes, I can do this with you. That's the key. They don't want to be told about the problem because they don't feel empowered to solve it. So nobody likes the idea that I just paid you to tell me a problem with no solution. Now I'm mad. I don't want to spend time reading something, right? And I can't solve it. And in particular, when we have conversations around HR, org development, DEI, and business, your career is on the line, your reputation is on the line, uh, your livelihood is on the line, things that you have worked for and held close and dear to you about how you feel about the world are on the line. And that's not a good feeling to think that you could be left in limbo at the end. So one thing that we worked on, worked on in the book is that there would be concrete solutions. So the way the book is structured, let's say you do one read through, you might go back and see two chapters that just give solutions. And so you can hold on to those two chapters and apply it. There's a whole chapter that talks about the different functional areas of HR. You can look at that and say, hey, we have this function staffed, but not this other one. Okay, I can see how that impacts the organization. Let me make changes. There is a list of organizational development frameworks that you can take, research, start to apply, hire a consultant, Again, you can take action. That was so important to me because information alone, while it is powerful, when you become too bloated with knowledge that you can't use, that is not only offensive, but it's dangerous because then you can't contextualize solutions and you never, ever, ever want to get to that point, especially as a, a founder. And you know, now that you hit on what your industry is, I really mm -hmm. want to drill down a little bit to that kind of the founder's dilemma, um, as we called it yeah. uh, at, at times in the working iteration, is there's this misconception, right? You're a founder. I'm a founder. Um, yeah. There's this misconception that it's my company. I can do whatever the heck I want and I don't have to answer to anyone, right? I'm sure no. you've seen that, but it, yes. it's not true. And that's, it's not true at all. 
we answer not only to our customers, because I feel like sometimes we can run into that issue too. We think we only have to respond or satisfy the people who pay us or the people we pay, meaning our employees, vendors, and partners. No, we're responsible to communities. When I mishandle information, when I spread misinformation, when I don't consult with the people who are uh, whose culture I might use for a particular product or service, I am accountable to those folks as well. I'm accountable to the community where I work. So I'll give you an example. We um we've recently had a a real bad power outage. So I live in uh Metro Atlanta, and it probably is considered a rural area. So the power if it storms, the power will usually go out, but at least a little bit of time. But I was thinking about it and I said, wow, if I'm in this community and I'm utilizing the power, I'm utilizing these resources, have I educated myself on what's happening, what the community needs? Because maybe they don't know what's going on. That's an aspect where I'm accountable to the folks around me. I'm accountable to the people in my community for how I manage my business, whether that is through volunteering, mentoring youth, whatever the case may be. And even though those things might seem disconnected from what we're saying about founders and their companies, it's really not because we are not on an island by ourselves. We are a part of the world. We are a part of an industry. We're a part of a community. We're a part of a business. And if we don't have the right lens and think about who's on our periphery where we don't have to focus on them, but they're still in view, we will cause more harm than good. And we see that in so many companies where 10 years down the line, folks are coming to them and saying, hey, you do realize you only hire these types of people. You do realize that your leadership team is completely homogenous. You do realize that you have issues with cultural appropriation. And folks are shocked because they never had to look on that periphery. They only had to look straight ahead and have tunnel vision. And that's dangerous. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things I learned along the way is you can be running an incredibly successful business. You can have customers who love you, um, mm -hmm. you know, and they're, and they're paying you, but the, the disparate impact of how of the service they're getting or whatever your product uh, may be is negatively impacting everyone else. That's not your yes. customer. Yes. And I, Honestly, I think about that a lot too, even in my work. So I'm not, I don't get to be the white knight. It makes me think of that Batman movie where it's like the all good versus all bad. No, that's not how stories really function because even villains have redeemable qualities. And so even for me as a black woman who is a part of multiple marginalized groups, there are ways I can marginalize or express bias against other people. And I talk about that in the book. I'm very upfront about the fact that I've had to unlearn so many things that seemed right when I was a kid because I grew up in this homogenous community, but it actually was not. And it was a choice that I had to make then and have to make every day of how I'm going to become aware of my biases, how I'm going to address them and change them, who I get to bring into my sphere of influence, who I get to bring into my economic investments. So if you think about who folks choose as vendors and partners, there was a reason why I was completely comfortable working with you and your team, not just because, oh, okay, they interviewed well. It was like, no, I want to pick people who have a different view of the world as well. Because again, a billion types of people are going to read my book. And so if I'm only looking at the lens of people who think and grew up and live just like me, 
I'm missing so many other folks who need this information as well. That is, I mean, that is such a great point. And I think kind of subconsciously, some of us do do it to the positive, do it to the negative. Um, you know, I, in my company, I am the only white man. So yeah. And it, it's I never fun thought about that as a conscious decision, which exactly. maybe it wasn't, but. And that's what I was thinking because sometimes we can unconsciously do the right thing. And I think one of the things that I focus on in the book is not just prescribing, do this, do that. No, it is to get you to be able to step back and analyze what you're doing and why. And then you can make an informed decision of whether or not you wanna keep doing it. But I think many founders and business leaders they don't really understand they, their why because they move from crisis to crisis. So if you think about it, and I'll talk about this in a book, when you're a founder or in the C-suite, you are getting limited information. If you think about it in a, a big company or even a large startup, you are like seven or eight levels removed from the ground floor of the company, the people who are touching customers day to day. Do you know how much stuff gets filtered out that actually might help you make a totally different decision than the decisions you make? And so the more we can create organizational cultures where people feel comfortable telling us things that they notice, telling us things that they need, telling us changes and trends that they're observing, the better we can be as decision makers. So you choosing in yourself, okay, I want to hire this person, but you know in your mind you're looking for the best person, but how that translate almost translates almost instinctively is, hey, I want diverse voices because I'm going to have diverse customers, that then begins to become an intentional decision and it filters down through the company, which is so important. That's the whole goal of OD, HR, and DEI work is for it to run like a system that you don't always have to engineer. And much like you just said with being so far removed, depending on the, the size of the organization, to only be surrounded by people who are going to filter out all the bad and tell you everything you want to hear there's no real growth that happens there because everything yes. just eventually it's gonna come up it's not just going away because you're Always. not hearing about it you have no many you have no idea how many jobs i've worked at where the topmost leader in a department or of the company was only getting 10 percent at best of the information they needed it could be like the whole company is almost on fire by the time it gets to them, oh, it's okay. We're handling it. It'll be fixed in like seven days. With the what? fire engine outside company, and the building burning down. This whole company is about to go under. Are you kidding me? And I couldn't believe it. I was so, I felt like it was an ethical issue. I felt like it was a moral issue. And I remember confronting some of the C-suite leaders because usually in the jobs that I've worked, I end up being an advisor or working on projects with them, no matter what my actual job title was. And I would ask them, who is telling this person the truth? Well, we know that they, you know, get an attitude if, if you say that, so we don't tell. And I was like, what? This is, this is completely unethical. And I actually talk about that in the book when I talk about social roles, because and that's why I brought it up. It's like, look, if as the founder, you, you have created a culture, because this is a you thing. If you have created a culture where people are afraid to tell the truth because of your emotional responses, you don't even know how you're harming your company. 
I mean, that is like ridiculous to have that level of immaturity because that's exactly what it is. And before we blame other people, because that's the other part to this, we get so used to feeling like we can blame other people. Well, if so-and-so would just do their job better or they're responsible. No, we all instinctively know how to cater and contort to satisfy the powers or influencers that be. And we are taught that as a kid, okay, if I want my mom to give me ice cream for dinner, let me hurry up and do the dishes. We don't have to be instructed of that. We know it, we learn it as a psychological pattern. And so if as a leader, you're only hearing good news and you never hear anything bad, that's a you problem. Because there's no way you have multiple people in your company and you never understand ways to grow. You never get pushback. So that's a maturity level on your end as a leader and a founder. And it's something that you need to be open with your team and your company that you're trying to address. I know it's hard, but it needs to happen. And that's why, I mean, I feel, especially in, in the industry that you are in, it's so important to have an independent consultant like yourself yes. come in who is not part of any of that BS Mm -hmm. You don't know the founder from a hole in the wall. You don't care what they want to hear. You mm -hmm. are strictly, you, you've already paid me. I've got mm -hmm. a job to do. Here's mm -hmm. my findings. Yes, I talk about the equity ecosystem in the book. And external consultants and partners are a part of that. And a part of the reason why consultants can be so powerful at this is because I'm technically a peer with the executive team and the CEO. So I'm the founder of my own company they are the founder or the topmost leader in their company. And so the same power dynamics that exist within the team, they don't exist in the same way with me because I'm talking to someone I'm on the same level with. This is another reason too why I caution, this is a little mentor piece, if you are a consultant, to build your own professional experience first. Because when people respect your experience, they're willing to listen to the hard truths in a way that they wouldn't listen to someone that they don't feel like has the same chops as them. So I have flat out told CEOs, listen, if this person is on your team, every DEI initiative you have will fail. If this person stays in this role, half of this team is gonna quit. What you gonna do? And they listen to me because they assume, okay, she has to know what she's talking about because she is this, because I know she worked here because she's a psychologist, all of the things. And so having that credibility as a peer, it hits different than if a coordinator or some manager in blah, blah, blah department tells you the exact same thing and it's no less untrue, right? It's no less true, but you won't listen because they're too close to you. And now to that point of building your professional experience, I mean, obviously yes. you're, you're educated, you're, you're experienced, yes. um, you've got letters after your name that you can you can tout. Uh, <laughs> but from I'm curious from your experience, and this is something I usually ask everyone as we're about to wrap up. How much, if at all, do you feel now having this book that encapsulates? No, I'm not gonna say all your knowledge because I yeah. got another one or two in you, but where you can say to the person, hey, here's basically what I'm all about. What has that yeah. done for you in differentiating from just what you have on paper on your resume or your CV? Yeah, and it's interesting because as a black woman too, and so much research has come out about this, you get pushed back a lot. Do you know what you say you know? 
Having a book for me has been helpful because it is my passive curriculum beta without me having to do a whole lot. Anybody can go buy my book at any time. If you want to know what I think, if you want to understand my inventions, the innovation in my mind, just go buy my book. I wrote all of it myself. If you want to test me to see if I know organizational psychology, like I say I do, Go buy my book. I talk about all types of framework. Right. So it's all it's literally all in this little package just for you at an affordable price. (laughs) Um, And I think also just saying that you're an author. I remember one of my coaches years ago told me this. It was like you need to publish a book ASAP. That gives a different level of credibility. And I can understand it now because the same way that people react when I tell them, oh, I'm finishing my PhD now in work psychology. And it's like, oh, really? That same eyebrow raise happens when I say, oh, I have a book. You can go purchase it. I had a meeting today where I was talking to someone about my book. And it it makes you more believable. And I, I think I want to end on this note. As an author, when you are so close to your material, it feels offensive to have to justify it in certain ways, especially in the nonfiction space. But this is a part of the political game that you have to play. And I know it's not always fair, it's not always comfortable or feel great, or it doesn't always feel great. But the same way you would want to see a doctor's credentials, the same way you would want to make sure that your lawyer passed the bar, as an author, being able to play the game of touting your book is a part of that credibility. So developing thick enough skin to where you're comfortable with that, that is your work as an author. And I mean, I don't want to kind of minimize educational backgrounds Mm -hmm. but you know people can say well this person's got a phd too you know what and you know maybe me mommy and daddy paid for your tuition and yeah you got the degree but what do you have your transcripts a book (laughs) is a financial commitment it's a time commitment and you actually have to know what you're talking about because if you fill 150 200 pages with garbage yes People are going to realize that, oh, wow, you really don't know anything um, and you're just yes. trying to fool me. And they can tell that <laughs> by page two. Yes. Yes. And it makes you feel likable, too. So I know we worked a lot on my voice coming through in the book. And particularly because I am an academic, too, I remember telling you all in one of the first meetings that, hey, it's going to be hard for me to sound casual enough that it's not like a psychologist wrote it but intelligent enough so you'll know an organizational psychologist wrote it and that's a a balance to strike and i would encourage authors to be thoughtful about that too because you do have to shift voices a little bit the same way you might speak to clients maybe you do need to shift that a little bit in your book or maybe you need to lean deeper into that voice so lots to think about I can't stress enough and I want to make sure that I say on this episode how grateful I am for the partnership because that's really what it was. It was a real partnership with accountability and support and kindness and uh, intervention at times and understanding and again, just a partnership. I honestly couldn't have published this book without you because it was way too much trying to write for clients, write my dissertation, do homework, and write this book. Honestly, if anybody is on the fence about a ghostwriter, and sometimes people are because they feel like it's inauthentic, a good ghostwriting team 
will help to affirm who you are and who you want to be through this book. It won't take away or dilute that at all. Galen, I thank you tremendously for that plug. That's never the purpose for these calls because uh, now <laughs> it's my turn to say, please tell everyone, anyone out there who's struggling with their HR, with their, with their startup, uh, with anything at all in their organizational world, how do they get in touch with you to find out more about what you can do for them? Yes, absolutely. So you can find me on LinkedIn at Kaylin Romaine. I'm always over there running my mouth. I also have a podcast that's available on YouTube and Spotify called the Dreaming Forward Podcast. And of course, you can book a call with me. Uh, if you go to GoDreamForward.com, there will be a link at the top that says book a call. And we can talk about how we can partner together to make your organization one that people love to work for and buy from. Fantastic. And uh, again, I can personally affirm if you have any doubts, just buy the book. Um, <laughs> I know what's in there. I know you're going to have some eye-opening moments where you may not want to believe it. You, you may have to wait a little bit before you contact Kaylin and process what's going on in your world. But um, highly recommend for anyone that's looking for help in this area to reach out to Kaylin. Uh, we always appreciate when you support our guests. So I want to thank everyone for tuning in today and checking out the Pen Podcast with myself, Matt Harms, and Kaylin Romaine of Go Dream Forward Consulting. We will catch you all on the next episode. Kaylin, thank you once again so much. 